The title of this evening's talk is Metta, the Heart's Release. And beginning <clears throat> with some words from the Buddha, from the Samyutta Nikaya. It is in this way that we must train ourselves by liberation of the self through love. We will develop love. We will practice it. We will make it both a way and a basis. Take our stand upon it, store it up, and thoroughly set it going. The Buddha Dhamma, the teachings and the practices, are about transforming the heart, transforming the mind. This evening we'll consider one of the important teachings and practices of this transformation, which is classically called Brahma-vihara, or divine abiding. The radiant warmth and openness of metta, unconditional loving-kindness and acceptance, unconditional friendship, the experience of an open-hearted connection that isn't fraught with clinging or attachment, and not even necessarily with any sense of obligation. This unconditional quality of mind and heart arises quite naturally when our mindful attention penetrates the layer of conditioning that shuts us down to others. It's also important to recognize that this capacity of metta is present when the focus of mindful attention is able to begin penetrating the layer of conditioning that keeps us from connecting with our own bodily and mental experience with clarity and with kindness. So, beginning with an old story. It's said that the Buddha first taught metta to a group of 500 monks who went into a particular and seemingly very congenial forest for their three-month rainy season retreat, a forest that was adjacent to a village of very strong supporters who had offered to build 500 huts for the monks to stay in during their rains retreat, and who were also uh, happy to keep the monks' alms bowls filled during their practice period. And so the monks moved in, and they began practicing insight meditation, vipassana. It said that the unseen beings, the forest devas who lived there, became fearful that the monks, became fearful of the monks, uh, and felt, actually began to feel quite put out <clears throat> of their home when they saw that the monks weren't just visiting the forest for a day or two. And so these forest-dwelling beings began to create various frightening sounds and 
sights and to emit some very distasteful odors, hoping that this would make the monks uh, leave what they considered to be their forest. Well, soon enough the monks did become quite terrified, which broke their samadhi, broke their concentration, and disrupted their mindfulness. And some of them even developed fever and pain and dizziness in conjunction with the fear that they were experiencing. And all of them felt it was impossible to continue practicing where they were. So they went to where the Buddha was staying and they related their tale to him, to which the Buddha responded, My beloved monks, go back to exactly the same forest and practice your meditation there. Well, the monks responded to the Buddha's words by pleading that they not be sent back to that forest again saying that it was impossible to practice there. Well, the Buddha's response was this. Dear monks, because you went to practice meditation without a weapon of protection, you have encouraged many distractions and many difficulties. This time, however, I'll give you a true weapon of protection. And it's said that it was at this point the Buddha offered offered them the metta teachings and uh, metta practice. Out of their great respect for the Buddha, the monks didn't dare contradict his wishes. And so, armed with the metta teaching and practice, they went back to that same forest. And for a while, continued feeling some feelings of fear and some feelings of anxiety. While at the same time they very diligently and virtuously practiced metta. Well, soon enough there were no more fearful sights, sounds, and distasteful odors. Whereas the devas had been previously hostile towards the monks, their anger and their resentment disappeared when they began to feel the monks' metta. And in fact, feelings of respect, welcome, and even reverence began to be the Deva's experience, along with the sense of being connected, like with family. And the inclination arose for them to provide an environment of safety, to protect the monks from the particular dangers that lurked in the forest, such as in in that area, tigers and poisonous snakes. So they, they decided they needed to be a protection so that the monks could practice their meditation peacefully. After recovering and strengthening and deepening their concentration and open-hearted presence through practicing metta. It's said that all 500 monks at some point began practicing samatha and insight, vipassana practice, again, with metta then as their foundation. And it's said that because they were able to practice meditation calmly and peacefully, 
that all of them, all 500 of them, became arhats, fully enlightened beings, during that rainy season retreat. So the great strength of a mind, a heart, protected through the energy of metta. This quality, this capacity to stay present and connect with a heart that's fearless, with a heart, a mind that's free of ill will. Gandhi called it the most powerful and the most subtle force in the universe. Metta is the energy that allows for and brings connection. It's the energy that keeps it all together. And this capacity is called for again and again and again throughout our practice, throughout our life. The practice and the energetic experience of metta is offered and felt as a natural heartfelt wish towards oneself, towards another particular person or a group of beings, wishing oneself and others to be happy, to be at ease, to be safe and secure, to be peaceful. In the process of developing, expanding and deepening this energy of the heart, one of the things that we begin to taste is that our wants, our own preferences, begin to pale to some degree. They are, of course, important on one level. But within the incredible radiant energy of warmth that begins to flow from our heart in the process of cultivating unconditional friendship and acceptance, unconditional kindness and love, our personal wants and preferences begin to lose their usual intensity of almost always being very front and center. Sometimes my experience of the unconditional human kindness of metta is like the sunshine. That warmth of the sun that permeates our outer and inner sense of being. We could say that the practice of loving kindness is akin to letting the sunshine warm our heart warm our whole being, and then at some point radiating this quality out to the world around us. The just about every day, some of the day sunshine up here in the mountains is a really wonderful experiential experience regarding the possibilities of understanding metta through that metaphorical or literal experience here of letting the sunshine warm your whole being, inner and outer. And if you haven't already felt that, I suggest you try sometime to be outside when it's sunny out.
So where does the capacity to connect, to cultivate, to live with unconditional friendship, unconditional acceptance and kindness, where does it come from? It comes from our own experience of kindness. The experience of receiving kindness from others. It comes from our own experience of receiving warmth, of receiving love that's been given freely to us from another. If you had never, ever experienced this unconditional kindness, you would have an extremely difficult time with this practice. But really, such people are very, very rare. And in fact, living beings, all living beings, literally can't survive for very long without some degree of care and kindness being given to them. Every one of us here has experienced at least some kindness given to us, some love, some warmth given freely. So an example that I really like to use, because it happens uh, fairly often for me, and it happened again uh, a day or two before the retreat began. I go into the post office in Rancho State House to pick up my mail. And I walked in towards the post office, and someone opened the door for me. Someone I'd never noticed or seen me. I may have seen them, but I didn't notice them before. I didn't know the person. And we looked directly at each other into the eyes, and there was a smile that passed between us. And I felt a warmth of connection, and I thanked them for opening the door. And just that, that that's an act of unconditional kindness. It happens here, the dining room door. I've experienced it myself, being opened or held open, and I've seen it happen with others, and I've offered it also to others. A very simple act of kindness, unconditional kindness. And of course, each one of us have experienced kindness with people that we know and with people that we're close to. Very likely kindness that's expressed with a more overt and stronger energy. So this is where the seeds come from. These are the seeds that are planted in us, that we cultivate. The kindness that we've been given is the kindness that we grow that we water and fertilize, that we cultivate by giving metta to ourselves and through offering it out to others. It's a circle. It's like a transmission. We've been given the transmission through the kindness offered to us from others. We grow it. We cultivate it. And we give it out offering the transmission back out again and again and again. It's this essential and 
very beautiful circle. The kindness that we receive and the kindness that we give, it's always a gift. Every instance of unconditional loving kindness given to us involves people giving us their time, their care, their support, or in some way their help. Unconditional kindness given freely, it's a choice, a very natural choice that others make, that we make, and it has an effect on us. It has also an effect on others. Metta is really the ground, the bed, so to say, that all of the other immeasurable capacities of heart spring from, the other three divine abidings, compassion, karuna, mudita, appreciative or empathetic joy, and upeka, equanimity. It's also the capacity of heart and mind that allows the whole breadth of our meditation practice to unfold. To unfold both from and into. Metta is what engenders the qualities of open-heartedness, acceptance, kindness and patience. And with each and all of these qualities really being an essential ground for us throughout the practice and the process of liberation. When I was um, in China in 1986, I found out that the contemporary Chinese written character for love was developed out of two ancient pictographs or symbols. The top symbol was a very simple one, representing a person breathing, a symbol for breath, and the bottom symbol was one for the heart. So, based in ancient Chinese pictographic writing, the character for metta-love is breath through the heart. With the cultivation we're the cultivation of metta. We're moving towards or we're inviting the opening, the expansion of the heart, the mind. And continuing with the metaphor of the breath, metta is like the experience of breath moving through us. It's intangible, boundless, empty. Where from? Where to? And yet it's a very powerful energy that moves within us and from us. So what is it? In the Buddhist texts, it's often spoken about as non-ill will, the absence of ill will in relationship to ourselves meaning the absence of ill will in relationship to all of the phenomena of one's body and mind. However they're manifesting, 
moment to moment, and the absence of ill will towards others. So no aversion in any direction, meaning, for instance, no comparing ourselves in relationship to others, no comparison, no conceit, no pride, no self-depreciation, no self-judgment, and no judgment or depreciation of others. The absence of ill will in all directions. Here in retreat, how often might we think uh, that the person next to us or maybe the person on the other side of the room How often might we think that, oh, their practice is really so much better than mine? Or maybe the comparing mind says, oh, that person isn't practicing nearly as well as I am. The felt judgment that they're better than me, or I'm no good, or I'm great, no sleepiness, no movement, just... Look at that person over there, nodding away, restless, moving around. And it, you know, there's lots of other comparisons that we may have made, or maybe will make. Obviously, this is not metta. We're creating a separation. Me, other. The heart the mind is contracted. The self looms very large with this. If we see this, if we feel this closely, we find that it's very uncomfortable. And so we mindfully recognize and acknowledge this too as part of our practice. And we learn that one way to attend to the suffering of separation, the ache of self-centeredness, is to offer oneself metta, and also to offer the other person in the equation metta. One of the most striking aspects of metta, and maybe surprisingly so for some of you, is that metta is impersonal in nature. Even in relationship to what we think of as our self, what we are identified with and attached to in either a positive way or a critical way as our self. Our body, our thoughts, ideas, opinions, beliefs, skills, our knowledge. Metta is impersonal in nature in relationship to other beings as well. A heart-mind filled with metta has the capacity to impartially embrace all beings, not just those that we're close to in our lives, those that it's easy to care about, or those who might be useful, or maybe amusing, or pleasing to us. 
a heart, a mind filled with metta holds the possibility of a capacity for what can be called immeasurable impartiality. This capacity of being able to connect connect to and care for any being, all beings. The great Indian teacher Krishnamurti uh, wrote this in his meditation journal. Meditation is one of the most extraordinary things. It's not an intellectual affair, but when the mind enters into the heart, the mind has quite a different quality. It is really then limitless. It's a sense of living in a vast space where you're part of everything. Meditation is the movement of love. It isn't the love of the one or of the many. It's like water that anyone can drink out of any jar, whether golden or earthenware. It's inexhaustible, and you must begin without knowing anything about it and move from innocence to innocence. The mind, the heart of metta connects and accepts. It's non-critical, non-judgmental. Metta really has no interest in comparing or fixing. It allows things to be as they are with an inner sense of well-being, patience, acceptance. Metta and aversion can't exist simultaneously. As each of you are practicing here in the very specific ways that you are, some of you primarily and specifically practicing metta, others practicing towards cultivating a concentrated clarity of attention, while others being uh, cultivating uh, and strengthening a clear and penetrating mindfulness, practicing from the more vipassana perspective. Some of you, many of you actually, may also be working with the practice of metta, either directly or indirectly, in relationship to its purifying and healing aspects. With all of this, you're learning that metta aids the development of our capacity for a clear, deep, and strong, concentrated, mindful attention. As our capacity for metta grows and blossoms, there's an unwinding, an unbinding of the heart and mind from states of fear, states of anger, judgment, states of separation, disconnection. These strong afflictive energies that move through the mind and the heart and the body begin to unwind, to weaken, to fade, and even eventually to dissolve under the strong medicine of the heart of metta, concentration, and mindfulness. 
Someone once asked the Indian spiritual teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj, who, as I mentioned uh, at another point, often taught through dialogue with his students. Someone, one of his students asked him, what can make me love? And his response was, you are love when you're not afraid. You are love when you're not afraid. Something that was amazing and so important for me when I began to discover it is that metta doesn't necessarily depend on initially liking someone or approving of them. It actually has nothing to do with approving of. With the heart of metta, we're able to connect with beings beneath that which we may not agree with or connect with beings who may act in ways that we might not like or might not condone. Metta is acceptance on a very deep universal level, but not necessarily approving. There aren't any favorites. There's no favoring over one over another with metta. Consequently, it's not divisive. Metta is a unifying energy. It brings things together. It's goodwill towards all beings, all sentient beings. This most subtle and powerful energy in the universe. And so from this we can begin to understand that it's impersonal in nature and that it's unconditional, meaning no conditions needing to be met for metta to manifest. So reflecting on this for just a moment, if there were no metta in this world, this world would have flown apart, broken apart, long ago. There have been periods throughout human history up to and very much including this very moment when there has been more or less metta manifesting in the world. More peaceful times, times of relative ease in the world, and periods when the world has been or is increasingly unsettled, more violent times. This powerful energy of goodwill that unifies, that brings things together. So essentially necessary. The writer Dina Metzger wrote this. There are those who set fire to the world. We are in danger. There's no time to go slowly. There's no time not to to love. And the Buddha, of course, said it quite perfectly in his way. Hatred can never cease by hatred. Only through love alone can healing happen. This is a universal law. If metta is the ground, the basis, 
and the impetus of our thoughts, our words, and our actions, if, that all, if all our thoughts, words, and actions spring from metta, if our motivations and intentions spring from the heart of metta, the kama, or karma in Sanskrit, that's created will be wholesome and healing, both personally and in ways far beyond our own small lives, even in ways that we may never know. So I'd like to now spend a few moments exploring some expectations of what we might think the experience of metta is supposed to be. I think that many of us expect metta to be a feeling, some familiar felt sense. And of course our expectation is based on something that we're already familiar with. It's totally impossible to expect something or look for something that we don't know. Something that we've never experienced. Or to look for something that maybe we have experienced but didn't label as unconditional loving kindness. Didn't label as unconditional friendship, metta. Most certainly, metta can and does manifest as a familiar felt sense sometimes. But we actually can get caught, we can get stuck in expecting this. And it's limiting. Metta is not sentimental at all. It's not at all romantic. These are both completely, totally conditional experiences. And metta isn't even necessarily a particularly juicy feeling. The mind, the heart, that's free from ill will, free from greed, fear, hatred, and anger, in any given moment, is the mind of stillness, the heart of peacefulness. It's in this absence of greed, in the absence of aversion. It's in the abiding stillness and peace that metta arises. And it may not be a feeling we think of or are familiar with as love. There's a great power and strength in the capacity to connect within ourself and in relationship to others, directly, clearly, patiently, and fearlessly, with a mind, a heart, free of ill will. We could say that this is metta. This unfettered, unconditional connection. And it's not so easy. There are many, many layers of conditioning that need to be seen, seen through and let go, let go of along the way of our practice. And again, as I've mentioned uh, previously, I found over the years that the qualities of honesty and humility 
are essential if practice is to continue to unfold, reaping its most amazing and freeing benefits. There's a beautiful story in one of the collections of the Buddha's teachings from the Anguttara Nikaya. It's the story of Sariputta's lion's roar. And this this is demonstrated very clearly in this sutta. Sariputta was one of the Buddha's two uh, chief disciples and foremost in terms of discernment and wisdom next to the Buddha. And the story takes place just after the completion of the three-month rainy season retreat. The monks were beginning uh, to disperse for their various duties and responsibilities in other places. And this is the sutta. It's a little bit, um, a little bit condensed. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling in Savati in Jetta's Grove at Anathapindika's monastery. At that time, the Venerable Sariputta approached the Blessed One. Having paid homage to him, he sat down to one side and said, Lord, I have now completed the rains retreat at Savati and wish to leave for a country journey. And the Buddha replied, Sariputta, you may go whenever you are ready. The Venerable Sariputta rose from his seat, bowed to the Buddha, and keeping him to his right, departed. Soon after the Venerable Sariputta left, One monk spoke to the Buddha, saying, The Venerable Sariputta has hit me and has left on his journey without an apology. Right away, the Buddha called another monk and said, Go, monk, and call the Venerable Sariputta, saying, The Master calls you Sariputta. The the monk did as as he was bidden, and the Venerable Sariputta responded, saying, Yes, friend. Then two of the Buddha's other chief disciples, the Venerable Mahamogalana and the Venerable Ananda, went around to all of the monks' lodgings and said, Come, reverend sirs, come, for today the Venerable Sariputta will utter his lion's roar in the presence of the Blessed One. The Venerable Sariputta approached the Buddha and after bowing to him, sat down to one side. When he was seated, the Buddha said, One of your fellow monks here has complained that you hit him and left on your journey without an apology. And the Venerable Sariputta responded, Lord, I remember the discourse you gave 12 years ago to Bhikkhu Rahula, Bhikkhu Rahula, the Buddha's son, when he was 18 years old. You taught him to contemplate the nature of earth, water, fire, and air in order to nourish and develop the virtues of love compassion, joy, and equanimity. And just a little bit of an aside, we did uh, explore this sutta to some degree um, with the guided meditation, the four elements guided meditation from another perspective. Although your teaching was directed towards Rahula, I also learned from it. I have practiced and observed that teaching. Lord, I practice my... This is continuing talking. Sariputta's talking on, on and on here. Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving kindness. 
One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body, of the actions of the body in the actions of the body, and is not present, may well hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology. Lord, I have practiced to be like the earth. Whether people throw clean substances upon the earth or foul, unclean substances, the earth has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like the earth, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body and is not present may well hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology. But it is not my way to be rude to a fellow monk, hit him, and walk on without apologizing. Lord, I have practiced to be like the water. People use water to wash things clean and unclean, and yet for all that, the water has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like water, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness, who does not practice becoming like water, might hit a fellow monk and go on his way without saying, I'm sorry, I am not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced to be more like fire. Fire burns things pure and impure, the beautiful as well as the distasteful. And yet for all that, the fire has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like fire, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness of seeing, hearing, thinking, might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced to be like the air. The air blows over things clean and unclean and carries all smells, pleasing and unpleasing. And yet for all that, the air has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like the air, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. Lord, I have practiced mindfulness of the body in the body, the movement of the body in the movement of the body, the positions of the body in the positions of the body, the feelings in the feelings, and the mind in the mind. One who does not practice mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. I am not such a monk. Lord, I, just as an untouchable boy or girl, begging vessel in hand and clad in rags, enters a village with a humble heart. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is humble, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. I have practiced and learned every day. A monk who does not practice loving kindness and mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk. And Sariputta continued to deliver his lion's roar. And at one point, the accusing monk rose from his seat and arranged his robe, his upper robe over one shoulder, and with his head on the ground, bowed at the feet of the Buddha, saying, 
Lord, I committed an offense when I was so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful. I I accused the Venerable Sariputta falsely, wrongly, untruthfully. Let the Blessed One in the Sangha accept my admission of the offense and pardon me, and I shall practice restraint in the future. And the Buddha responded to this monk, saying, Truly, monk, you committed an offense when you were so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful that you accused Sariputta falsely, wrongly, and untruthfully. But as, as you have recognized your offense and made amends, we pardon you. It's a sign of growth when one recognizes one's offense, makes amends, and in the future practices restraint. And then the Buddha turned to the Venerable Sariputta, saying, Forgive this, forgive this foolish man, Sariputta, before his head splits into seven pieces on this very spot. See, the Buddha had a little sense of humor. <laughs> and Sariputta responded, I shall forgive him, Lord, if this revered monk also asks for my pardon, as I may not have been skillful enough and created some misunderstanding, may he too forgive me. And then Sariputta and the accusing monk bowed to each other three times and reconciled. Metta is one of the best medicines, a very powerful medicine. Our human heart is intuitively, naturally loving. Connection and kindness are absolutely natural human capacities. And we see this in the smallest children. A number of years ago now, I was feeding one of my granddaughters when she was seven months old, giving her pieces of banana. And she took one of the pieces from me and put it into my mouth with a great big smile kind of erupting on her face as she proceeded to feed me. A very innocent and pure expression of the heart of kindness. A while ago I read a book that was about and by a 102-year-old African-American man whose name was George Dawson. He grew up on his family's farm in East Texas and he was the grandson of slaves. At the age of eight, George had to go to work to help support his family. So he never attended school and he never learned how to read until at the age of 98 he decided to attend a literacy program and he learned how to read at the age of 98 and then he wrote a book about himself and it's an amazing and inspiring and illuminating book George describes how he learned to read the world and survive in it so I'd like to um, Just uh, share a little bit of this book with you. 
At one point, George is having a conversation with Richard. Richard is the man who helped George write the book. And they're talking uh, together about George, who at the age of 101 at this point, uh, was still living alone. And as George says, doing just fine. So Richard speaking, you're not really alone. People call and come by all day long. There's a community of people that care about you. You live by yourself, but no, you're not alone. And George says, that's right, you figured that out. Yes, it's nice that people come by like they do, but they do because they do it because they want to. I have nothing to give them. But they always leave, they always feel better when they leave. And Richard says, that sounds like a riddle. George, it does, doesn't it? I'll tell you the answer for that. All my life I've been good to people. In all those years, every person I met, I've treated with respect. People do the same for me. Richard, what goes around comes around. George, that's right. It all comes back. Everything you do. Sometimes it might take a while, that's all. I tell people not to worry about things. Not to worry about their lives. Things will be all right. People need to hear that. Life is good just as it is. There isn't anything I would change about my life. Richard, people worry too much? George, that's right. Be happy. Be happy for what you have. Help someone instead of worrying. It'll make a person feel better. It's good to be generous. It doesn't take much to make a difference. Even the poorest person can take the time to say hello. That can be a help. Have some sympathy for someone's hard luck story. It's not about money. Give what you can, and if you have nothing, at least pray for somebody. Have good thoughts. So the cultivation, the practice of metta, is metta itself. And as an example of the stability and beauty of a mind, a heart, steeped in kind-heartedness. I'd like to continue on just a little bit with our 102-year-old bodhisattva, George Dawson. For much of his life, George endured a very pervasive racism and segregation in the South growing up in East Texas. During the time that he grew up there, East Texas had the highest rate of lynchings of any state in the Union. And actually this book begins when George was eight years old as he witnessed the lynching of a teenage boy who was his hero. When George was 65, he was doing yard work for a woman who had left his lunch out on the back porch with her dogs. And this is George speaking. She didn't see me from the shadow of the tree, but I watched as she put down two bowls on the floor for some dogs and another she set up on the shelf that was above the reach of the dogs. I climbed up on the porch and lifted the bowl off the shelf. It looked good, and as hungry as I was, it smelled even better. I was looking for a chair to sit in and a quiet spot to say grace when I looked down and saw the two dogs eating the same food that was there for me on the shelf. There wasn't such a surprise in that, 
People didn't buy dog food in the sack like they do now. Dogs mostly ate the leftovers from the table. But what hit me was that she expected that I would eat on the porch with the dogs. I didn't have to eat in their dining room, but back in their kitchen would have been all right. I told myself that I was good enough to eat a meal with people, not dogs. I set the bowl back on the shelf. Being hungry, that wasn't so easy. I know she didn't plan to insult me. She just didn't know better. Still, she could believe what she wanted. But I wasn't an animal. I wasn't going to eat with dogs. If I did, she would go on believing that way. And maybe she would have been right. Late in the afternoon, she came by. Didn't you see the lunch that I left on the porch? I nodded. I saw the dogs on the porch. Well, the lunch on the shelf was for you. It was a good lunch. Thank you. I'm sure it was. It's just that I don't eat with dogs. As I said that, I looked her straight in the eye. I could tell she understood what I meant. She got angry and red in the face, but I didn't turn away. I didn't look down. I eat with people. I'm a human being. At my words, her face tightened and her look changed to meanness and anger. From her mother and father and back through her grandparents, I could see a hundred years of anger and fear coming out towards me. I stood up to it and I repeated, I'm a human being. She was so angry she couldn't speak. I waited. Finally, in a cold tone, she said, You don't need to come back anymore. I said, that's right, I don't. I don't need to. And then George goes on to say, I figure you can't hate someone for what they think and do, but you can hate yourself for the unacceptable ways you react to it. In the transformation, the opening into the greatness of heart, there's a great letting go, a release, a relinquishment of much of what we've held on to, much of what we've grasped, often very tightly. There's a great release of the contractions of the heart, the past pains, the hurts, the anguish that we've taken in and taken on as mine, as me, as I am. And it's not so easy to relinquish this, this conditioning, these habituated patterns of our self. But this is what binds the heart. This is what binds the mind. Our commitment to our practice, our willingness to take the journey, is what affords the transformation. And it's not so easy at times, but it's so very well worth it. There's a tremendous fullness of energy which is constituted by great confidence, strength, and a very clear straightforwardness that comes from a loving heart, that comes from the heart of metta.
In closing the talk, I'd like to share a story with you about a young Native American woman named Sue Ann Big Crow. And this comes uh, from a book called On the Res. Sue was born on March 15, 1974, on the Pine Ridge Reservation. And she grew up with her sisters on the reservation in her mother's three-bedroom house. Sue mother, Chick Big Crow, was known to be quite a strict mother. Her daughters always had to be in the house or the yard by the time the streetlights came on. And the only after-school activities she let them take part in were the structured and chaperoned kind. Unsupervised wanderings and later cruising around in cars were out, were completely out. Sue Ann said that she and her sisters had to come up with their own fun because their mother wouldn't let them socialize outside of school. Chick Big Crow was strongly anti-drug and alcohol, belonging to the small but adamant minority on the reservation, that takes this stance. When Sue Ann was nine years old, she was staying with her godmother on New Year's Eve when the woman's teenage son came home drunk and shot himself in the chest. The woman was too distraught to do anything, so Sue Ann called the ambulance and the police and cared for her godmother until other grown-ups arrived. Perhaps because of this incident, Sue Ann became as opposed to drug and alcohol as her mother was and she gave talks on the subject to school and youth groups and even made a video urging her message. Rob Bradford, a former Pine Ridge teacher and coach who was also a friend of the Big Crow family, was once asked whether Sue Ann's public advocacy on this issue wasn't risky given the prominence of alcohol in the life of the reservation. You have to understand, Ross said, Sue Ann didn't respond to peer pressure. Sue Ann was peer pressure. She was the backbone of any group she was in, and she was way wiser than her years. As strongly as Sue Ann's mother forbade certain activities, she encouraged her daughters in sports, and at one time or another, they did them all. Cross-country running and track and volleyball, cheerleading, softball, basketball. When Sue Ann was in the fifth grade, she heard that somewhere she heard somewhere that the way to improve your dribbling was that you should bounce a basketball a thousand times a day with each hand. So she performed this daily exercise faithfully on the cement floor of the patio. Her mother and sisters getting very tired of the sound. So for variety she would shoot layups against the gutter and the drain pipe until they came loose from the house and had to be repaired. Some people who live in cities and towns near Indian reservations treat their Indian neighbors decently. Some don't. Some people in South Dakota hate Indians unapologetically and will tell you why. And in their voices, you can hear a particular American meanness that's centuries old. When teams from Pine Ridge play play non-Indian teams, the question of race is always there. 
When Pine Ridge is the visiting team, usually the hosts are quite courteous and the players and fans have a good time. Pine Ridge coaches know that occasionally at away games, their kids will be insulted. Their fans will feel unwelcome. The host, Jim, will be dense with hostility and referees will call fouls on Indian players every chance they get. Sometimes in a game between Indian and non-Indian teams, the difference in race becomes an important and distracting part of the event. One place where Pine Ridge teams sometimes got harassed was the high school gym in Leed, South Dakota. In the fall of the late 1980s, the Pine Ridge Lady Thorpes went to Leed to play a basketball game. Sue Ann was a full member of the team by then. She was a freshman, 14 years old. Getting ready in the locker room, the Pine Ridge girls could hear the din from the lead fans. They were yelling fake Indian war cries. The usual plan for the pregame warm-up was for the visiting team to run onto the court in a line, take a lap or two around the floor, shoot some baskets, and then go to their bench at courtside. And after that, the home team would come out and do the same, and then the game would begin. Usually, the Lady Thorpes lined up for their entry more or less according to height, which meant that the senior, Donnie Decoy, one of the tallest, went first. As the team in the hallway leading from the locker room, as the team waited in the hallway leading from the locker room, the heckling got louder. Some fans were waving food stamps, a reference to the reservations receiving federal aid. Others yelled, where's the cheese? The joke being that if Indians were lining up, it must be to get some commodity cheese. The lead high school band had joined in with fake Indian drumming and a fake Indian tune. Donnie DeCorey looked out the door and told her teammates, I can't handle this. So Anne quickly offered to go first in her place. She was so eager that Donnie became suspicious. Don't embarrass us, Donnie told her. Sue Ann said, I won't. I won't embarrass you. So Donnie gave her the ball, and Sue Ann stood first in line. She came running out onto the court, dribbling the basketball, expertly dribbling the basketball, with her teammates running behind. The court, on the court, the noise was deafening. Sue Ann went right down the middle and then suddenly stopped when she got to center court. Her, team, her teammates were taken by surprise, and some of them bumped into each other. Sue Ann turned to Donnie DeCorey and tossed her the ball. <clears throat> then she stepped into the jump ball circle at center court, facing the lead fans. She unbuttoned her warm-up jacket, took it off, and draped it over her shoulders, and began to do the Lakota shawl dance. Sue Ann knew all of the traditional dances. She had competed in many powwows as a little girl. And the dance she chose was a young woman's dance, graceful and modest and show-offy, all at the same time. I couldn't believe it. She was powwowing like get-down, Donnie DeCorey recalls. And then Sue Ann started to sing. And she began to sing in Lakota swaying back and forth in the jump ball circle, doing the shawl dance, using her warm-up jacket for a shawl. The crowd went completely silent. All that stuff, the lead fans were yelling, it was like she reversed it somehow, a teammate said. In the sudden quiet, 
all they could hear was her Lakota song. So Anne dropped her jacket, took the ball from Dunny to Corey, ran a lap around the court, dribbling expertly and fast, and the audience began to cheer and applaud. She sprinted up to the basket, went up in the air, and laid the ball through the hoop, with the fans cheering very loudly now. And of course, Pine Ridge went on to win the game. The person who transmitted this story said that he couldn't find evidence of a single act as elegant, as generous, or as transcendent as Sue Ann's dance at center court in the gym at Leed. And I agree. That was Sue Ann's Lion's Roar. And from Hafiz. <clears throat> Even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look at what happens with a love like that. It lights up the whole sky. There's a fullness of energy and a confident way to walk our human path when the feeling of loving kindness is strong. The Buddha called this tremendous fullness of energy the lion's roar. He said that when he himself spoke, it was like the lion's roar in the jungle because of the power, because the power behind his words was born out of loving care and great compassion. The real results of practice often come as a surprise. You encounter a difficult situation. Do what seems to come naturally. And then, after the fact, you realize that you handled the situation very differently from the way you used to. The natural, effortless expression of a clearly focused mindful awareness, loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity is the true result. At the time, you what you do seems perfectly natural. It's no big deal, you might say to a friend who asks how you were able to stay present and do what needed to be done. But really it is a big deal because the natural expression of these qualities changes your life and the lives of everyone you encounter. And closing the talk, with an excerpt from another uh, Mary Oliver poem, the poem called To Begin With the Sweetgrass. And this is a, a, a portion of a small portion of it. What I loved in the beginning, I think, was mostly myself. Never mind that I had to, 
since somebody had to. That was many years ago. Since then I have gone out from my confinements, through with difficulty. I mean the ones that thought to rule my heart, I cast them out. I put them on the mush pile. They will be nourishment somehow. Everything is nourishment somehow or other. And I have become the child of the clouds and of hope. I have become the friend of the enemy, whoever that is. I have become older, and cherishing what I have learned, I have become younger. And what do I risk to tell you this, which is all that I know? Love yourself. Then forget it. Then love the world. something else I want to share but I can't find it. Patience. So we have some um, the, the Metta Sutta which is actually a very short sutta are very clear instructions for us um, for the practice and this is a particular translation that I like very much translated from the Pali by the monks of the from the Amaravati monastery in England this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace let them be able and upright straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short, or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downward to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, Seated or lying down, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding two fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world, meaning born into the world of suffering.
So let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.